0: What do you love about music? To begin with? (laughs) Everything. great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world.
1: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times.
2: And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show... We've got an interview and a live performance from producer-composer John Bryan in front of a live audience here at Chicago Public Radio. Jim, uh, very exciting to have John Bryan actually get out of Los Angeles anytime, anywhere. He doesn't leave anywhere much, no to do a performance for us. He does not perform outside of Los Angeles very often. He is one of the music industry's secret weapons, one of the great producers of the last decade, records by Amy Mann, Fiona Apple, Kanye West's last album, also a terrific soundtrack composer, mainly for Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, and a
1: great performer in his own right. Plus, we're going to look at, Greg, the last installment, allegedly, people are, are saying there might be more, but the fifth and apparently final record by... Uh, Johnny Cash, and the American recording series that he did with Rick Rubin, one of the great final acts of an already stellar career. And I believe you're going to lay a Desert Island jukebox track on us. But first, as always, we have some news. All right, Craig, the biggest music news story of the week, hands down, possibly even of the year, is that the number one concert promoter in America has bought the number two concert promoter in America. <laughs> Live Nation, formerly Clear Channel Entertainment, has swallowed up the 10 venue House of Blues chain across the country. And, and and this isn't going to be good for the concert consumer. Live Nation, $1.3 billion in gross revenues in
2: 2005. House of Blues, a distant second at $245 million, But still, Jim, we're talking about one and two now becoming one again, making one even bigger
1: than it already was. Microsoft just bought Apple, basically. Yeah. You know, if we use the computer analogy in the concert world, House of Blues owned and operated 10 venues across Mm -hmm. the country. Chicago was by far their most profitable, actually, but also Las Vegas, Los Angeles, Orlando, the one that was damaged by Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, Atlanta, Toronto, Dallas. These were mid-sized venues of of about 2,000 people, 1500 2, yeah
2: 000? anywhere between you know 1200 to 2000 and uh, you know we're talking about the only significant competition in several of these cities for any Live Nation shows.
3: Right.
1: So they they basically bought out their main competitor in some big markets. In Chicago and in Minneapolis, as well as several other markets in the Midwest, we still have one of the remaining regional promoters, Jam Productions. They do most of the shows of the club-size and theater-size venues in Chicago, as well as in Minneapolis. There used to be 10 or 12 big regional promoters that uh, were all swallowed up one by one by Clear Channel, now Live Nation. There's still a handful of people in in cities. One of the things that the Local promoters still maintain control over is the mid-sized theater or large club venue, right? Exactly like House of Blues. Cause Clear Channel in in the Clear Channel Live Nation Vision, you know, you start by playing your first gig to 200 people in a Live Nation venue, and they take you all the way up to the giant amphitheater of 40,000 <laughs> or 60,000 people. Why is this bad for you, the consumer? It's driven prices up, concert ticket prices. Live Nation has been the champion of the three hundred and fifty or three hundred eighty dollar Madonna show, the you know the uh, Paul McCartney shows. They have a vision of corporate synergy, which includes the act comes to town, plays the Live Nation venue, is played on the Clear Channel radio station, is advertised on the Clear Channel billboard, and then in between. And before and after the concert, on your way to the parking lot on your in the bathrooms you're advertised to the entire time it, it's really the shopping mollification of the live yeah. music
2: industry. A more homogenized touring industry is is a bad step absolutely, and not only for what it may uh, do to ticket prices, uh, which have gone up as you've pointed out in the history of clear Channel slash live nation ticket prices have steadily gone up under its uh, ownership in addition what is this going to mean for diversity of bookings chicago and los angeles in particular are notable for the house of blues there as being sort of epicenters of the rock and espanol movement they've been very adventurous in the types of bookings
1: bringing these latin rock bands to america and really giving them a foothold yeah. in the american market as well as in hip-hop as well as hip-hop and death metal you know, basically the stuff that Clear Channel traditionally wouldn't book in its other venues, right. Played House of Blues. What's going to happen now? Obviously, this sale just happened uh, it was for three hundred fifty million dollars cash. It won't all be finalized until the end of the year. It's going to probably be the biggest music business story of the year. We're going to stay on it on Sound Opinions, bring you a lot more perspective as this unfolds, and we'll try to figure out what's really going on here.
3: So I quit.
2: a little bit of creep from the uh, vocal group TLC one of the biggest hit makers of the 90s the man behind many of their biggest songs was a producer named Dallas Austin Austin's done tons of huge records out of his Atlanta bass. Pink Madonna Michael and Janet Jackson Boyz to Men you name it, he's probably had his fingerprints all over it as far as the R&B and hip-hop world has been concerned for the last decade. He had a weekend from hell, Jim, <laughs> <laughs> in a, a few days ago in Dubai of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, he was arrested at the airport arriving for one of those chic parties for uh, the model, Naomi Campbell and he shows up with cocaine <laughs> ready
1: that's for the a, party apparently you know you don't you don't fly into any any middle eastern country no, holding no, no, no. drugs as, i mean that's pretty dumb as he found out the hard way he was
2: arrested he was jailed he was sentenced to 4 years in prison they don't mess around there it's pretty quick. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's man, no Guantanamo there huh this was right out of midnight express all the way until the uh, country's vice president and emir Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum stepped in and pardoned our boy (laughs) (laughs) before he got thrown in jail. And Dallas Austin, to his credit, got right on a plane. He got the heck heck out out of there. there. He's never going back to Dubai if he's got any sense
1: at all. Unbelievable story. 1.26 grams of cocaine, four years in jail. One of the things you have to understand, though, Greg, is Dubai is not typical of the Middle East. Nick Tosh is one of our favorite rock writers ever, did a, a fascinating profile of this country in Vanity Fair last month about how Dubai is trying to draw people from all over the world to come it's like 10 times bigger and better and glitzier than las vegas there is the unfortunate downside that it's in a muslim country where drinking and sex and such are, are frowned upon but they kind of frown upon it in public yeah. and then you know wink and say yeah it's okay you know so there are you know apparently there is prostitution and drugs and alcohol so it, it makes sense he, he flies in you know they say oh you can't have drugs and then they pardon him but I'm sure it was a hairy couple of hours oh my there for Dallas.
2: More than a couple hours. He was actually arrested on uh, May 19th when he flew in for this party. Spent the rest of the time in the Dubai police station in their jail without being able to post bail. Then came this hearing. Then came the sentencing. And then came
1: the pardon. And my God. This man has uh, (laughs) learned. uh, Hopefully, he's learned his lesson. No, no. But I'm telling you, I don't think that Dubai is like Midnight Express. You know, the the way Nick Tosh has portrayed the country in Vanity Fair, it's a great piece. You got to read it. It was probably the equivalent of being stuck in line at the shopping mall. I don't want to go there to find out. I don't. No, I'm not saying I want (laughs) to test it. I don't want to test the difference. You know, when we do a live broadcast, I'm not that eager necessarily to do it from Dubai. But but nonetheless.
4: I never thought I needed help before thought that I could get by by myself But now I know I just can't take it anymore And with a humble heart on bended knee Begging you please for help
1: that, of course, is the one and only Johnny Cash on a song called Help Me, which kicks off the album American Five: Hundred Highways on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, there's a long story behind this album. Johnny Cash began recording it the uh, day after completing 2003's American 4, The Man Comes Around. What were these American recordings? I think one of the most unique partnerships in the history of popular music. That's why I chose that song, Help Me, to lead us into this discussion. That's a song that was written by Larry Gatlin and probably most famously covered by Johnny's old Sun Sessions bandmate, Elvis Presley. I think the key line there is, I never thought I needed help before. I thought that I could get by by myself. Cash is singing this after the death of his wife and true love, June Carter Cash. He died in September 2003. This album was made in that period where he's in mourning. His health is failing, but he wanted to make another record. And uh, he he had made several with Ruben. I think that partnership is extraordinary. I think he's singing as much about June as he is about Rick. I never thought I needed help before. I thought that I could get by by myself. Hmm. He found out he needed help. And Ruben really brought out the best of him. Here was an unlikely partnership between two Characters who never fit in anybody's mold. Rick Rubin brought us modern hip-hop by producing Run DMC, pairing it with Aerosmith on Walk This Way. Worked with the Beastie Boys. Worked with Slayer, the death metal band. Started American Recordings, his own record company. Worked with people like Tom Petty. He's a rock guy, you know, and he was very much of the alternative rock generation. And Johnny is this icon that Nashville respected but had no use for anymore so in the final act of his life they make these series of recordings where Reuben would basically just sit in front of Johnny put a microphone on the guitar a microphone on the voice and let him sing do his stuff sing songs that he loved that he wrote in some cases or that he covered and in other cases that he would have never heard unless Rick Rubin played for him something like Here's this song by this guy, Trent Reznor. Forget <laughs> the way that it sounds here on this Nine Inch Nails record, but listen, Johnny, to the words to hurt. And of course, Cash did amazing things with songs like that or the mercy seat by nick cave and on and on and on filling now five albums this is largely being marketed as cash's last album but it's not the last we're not going to see the end of cash product for a long time that can be good or bad on this album his voice was going he's not playing his own guitar ruben had to add that in later he did it with some great people you have uh, mike campbell and ben montench of tom petty's heartbreakers Beck's sideman, Smokey Hormel, alternative rock guy, Matt Sweeney, who was in Zwan and Chavez. An interesting band for sure, but I don't know how much of Johnny is actually on here because he was intending on retaking some of the vocals and hadn't done it by the time of his own death in September 2003. But let's play something that I think talks about life, and then we'll give our review of this album. Johnny Cash loved a couple things, man. He loved prison, he loved God, (laughs) he loved the belief in one true woman— And he loved trains. And this is the last song he ever wrote. It's called Like the 309s, a song about a train. How much better does it get than Johnny Cash singing about a train on Sound Opinions?
4: It should be a while before I see Dr. Death. So it would sure be nice if I could get my breath. Well, I'm not the crying nor the whining kind till I hear the whistle of the 309 of the 309 of the 309 put me in my box on the 309 take me to the depot put me to bed blow an electric fan on my gnarly old head Everybody take a look See I'm doing fine Then load my box On the 309 On the 309 On the 309 Putting me in my box On the 309 I hear the sound Of a railroad train The whistle blows and I'm gone again It will take me higher than a Georgia pine Stand back, children, it's a 309 It's a 309 It's a 309 Put me in my box on a 309
2: like the 309 Johnny Cash's last original songwriting credit on the American Five 100 Highways album that he worked on with Rick Rubin in the final weeks of his life. Jim, I, I, you know, you can hear it in his voice. This is a difficult album for anyone to listen to. If you care about Johnny at all, it's tough to hear. Clearly not in the best shape, clearly deteriorating, clearly on his last legs. I thought the American Four album was sort of the... Uh, the height or the nadir, depending on your perspective, of a dying man basically singing his last will and testament. It's even more apparent here with American Five, with June Carter Cash having died, that he was not only mourning her death but certainly anticipating his own. Dr. Death, he's singing about the the call from Dr. Death. Like the 309, he's talking about seeing himself in a pine box in that train that you're talking about. And that, I think, is by far the friskiest song on the record. Everything else is in a pretty mournful ballad mode Ooh, It's a, tough of a man lesson. who's uh, you know
1: I feel you, you feel like a voyeur you're watching this man die and you're a voyeur in, the, in you, that you feel like kind of a grave robber they made a lot of great music in the last phase of Johnny's career but it's not here uh, there there are some very bad songs Rubin took unlikely tunes to cash and it resulted in brilliance when they covered Nick Cave when they covered Trent Reznor uh, but here they're covering Gordon Lightfoot's If You Could Read My Mind and Rod McEwan's Love's Been Good to Me Ah. Uh, ugh bad. Not kitsch bad, because you hear there's no kitsch left in Johnny's voice. There's no laughing. I think the magic of the earlier records was that that Cash could find spirituality in such unlikely places. In prison, you know, in the execution chamber of the mercy seat. Here, Johnny's missing. The spirit's not there. Yeah,
2: I am reminded of Billie Holiday's second-to-last album, ironically enough, Uh, Lady in Satin, where again, it was a case of hearing a once great singer reduced to a shell of herself. And I think for fans of Cash, just as for fans of Holiday, there's a weird, almost sick fascination in hearing that and having this documented. You respect the integrity and the honesty of a performer who can put something like that out and say, this is me as I'm dying. I'm still looking ahead, looking ahead to the light in, in the case of Johnny Cash. But again, it's not the kind of thing that I want to listen to a lot. And I would point people toward this compilation that just came out this johnny cash personal file record which documents the acoustic recordings from his early 70s through early 80s period and that to me is a much more essential document the personal file record than the american 500 highways on the uh, sound opinions rating scale jim buy it burn it trash it I can't go all the way to say trash it for American 5. I mean, it's still Johnny Cash, and he's still singing some extraordinary music here. And his performances are quite moving. But an entire album of it is pretty difficult to listen to, and I have to give it a burn.
1: There are moments, Help Me, which brought us in. I think the song Rose of My Heart, where he's clearly singing about his love love of his life, but boy, I wish that Rick Rubin had presented it in a different context. Because the story of the American Recordings is one largely of joy, of an artist saying, hey, I'm still alive, I'm still vital. You know, Rubin and American Recordings took out a famous full page ad and billboard of johnny giving the middle finger to nashville because nashville <laughs> radio wouldn't play these incredible songs new recordings new music by johnny cash uh that's missing entirely here and, and it needs a little more middle finger but it is johnny cash so at least burn it jim and i
2: both say burn it on american five hundred highways and we're going to be back with a live interview and performance from john bryan recorded right here at chicago public radio But before we meet John Bryan, we talked about this uh, Johnny Cash personal file double CD a little earlier in the show, and we want to play something for you from it. Uh, It's a track called Tiger Whitehead.
5: While black bear is blooming in the thickets on the mountain, Sheepshire and watercress are growing round the fountain, Where a big black bear is drinking, lapping water like a dog. Tiger Whitehead's in the bed Sleeping like a log Tomorrow he'll see bear tracks Seven inches wide And by sundown he'll be bringing in the hide Pretty Sally Garland Coming down the mountainside Where Tiger Whitehead's grinding at the mill At the mill she sits down on a bearskin skin And she says, you'll be my man I'll have me the best bear hunter in these hills A wild child was tiger whitehead And they say he killed 99 bears Before he went to rest, went to rest Once he left two bear cubs orphaned But he brought them right on home and Sally nursed the two bear cubs upon her breast. Tiger now was eighty-five and he laid upon his bed And the bears he killed now numbered ninety-nine. 99.
2: All right, welcome to Sound Opinions. I am Greg Cotter of the Chicago Tribune. My partner is Jim DeRigatis of the Chicago Sun-Times. We're here with a uh, few members of our listening audience, and we thank them for coming. We are also here with uh, John Bryan, who uh, doesn't get out of L.A. that often, mainly because he's been a pretty busy guy. last 10 years, he's uh, been producing records for, oh, Kanye West, Amy <laughs> Mann, Fiona Apple, Rufus Wainwright... I've been working on soundtracks for Paul Thomas Anderson movies. Also has this little residency at Largo a Club in West Hollywood, where he's done uh, ten years worth of shows every Friday night, up until a few months ago. And uh, these shows are legendary. It used to be musicians would show up to play with John late in the evening, and you know Robin Hitchcock's in town, they'd show up and play with John. You know uh, Amy Mann would drop in, Michael Penn. But pretty soon, people just started to come to see John because it was like a Grateful Dead show, except better. I don't think there's ever been there's ever been a show that you've done twice. I mean, it's been a different show every yeah I, I, uh, can't, night. I,
6: I can't make any qualitative judgment of you know my show versus the Grateful Dead, but I assume there are less people on acid in the audience. That's the one thing I. Think. I, but it, that, too, is an assumption. So.
1: <laughs> yes, kind of a new generation version of that, the longstanding residency that Les Paul would have every week in New York. Very much you so. You know, and people in New York would go to see Les, and you never know who would be on stage. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it would be Jimmy Page playing with mm-hmm. yeah. you know.
2: Really an amazing thing. Now, you ended the shows uh, a few months ago because of a little tendonitis issue. Mm-hmm. I've heard tell of that last show, you basically did the entire show left-handed.
6: Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> Including playing Including the drums. Yeah. And the guitar, right? Yeah, well, which is not, that's sort of not the hard one. And Nora's piano, because, you know, you're used to using this limb anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, But getting a bit busier with the left hand to fill in some of the space started to get hectic. Uh, The guitar was the sort of fun one to try and get through, which I just stepped on lots of pedals so it would sustain, and it was just like some very bad histrionic,
1: you know everything 70s goes, guitar everything goes better with fuzz <laughs> <laughs> just, all right so so but uh, we we took a poll before you came out john and even most of the people who are here who are kind of Die Hard Brian heads uh, Very few of them Have there's, had the There's no such thing <laughs> th- There are <laughs> They're here <laughs> Very few people Have had the privilege Necessarily from Chicago In the Midwest uh, To go to Largo I think that the way You do the show Is fascinating And you did this yesterday At uh, the Intonation Music Festival mm-hmm. in, in Union Park You will start by Playing a groove On the drums And you sample that right. uh, When you hit your stride you I guess you click off The sample And that loops mm-hmm. And you move over To the piano <laughs> And you pl- get a little Piano thing going You sample a stretch of it And that loops and then you'll move over to guitar and vocals, add that on top. There are other times, I guess, where you add even other things in.
6: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, just great. anything to amuse myself. So a one-man
1: band, uh, courtesy of Electronics, that you set up and then augment.
6: Yeah, and it's, I don't know, I guess the fun of it for people is just seeing the process. I think there are a lot of things as a musician that, you know, we take for granted that are interesting to other people. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the first time anybody ever talks into a mic and there's echo on it, it's an astounding moment. I've never seen a human who experienced that for the first time who didn't go like,
3: Oh my God, that's,
6: that's incredible, incredible.
7: Incre- it's what? there again, again, again. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God.
6: But you forget, you know, it's just another, it's like a, you know, a hammer or a screwdriver to a musician. It's just in our part of the toolkit. Like, I don't know, I just started getting really bored going to see bands, two guitar, bass drums, play their 45-minute set in the same order they played it, usually with the same in-between song banner. And the interesting moment I would always see at gigs, and, you know, when I talk to most people, they usually agree. The night that the PA goes down, and there's five minutes of awkwardness, and then suddenly they just go sit at the front of the stage with some acoustic guitars Mm -hmm. and play for what people can hear them that's the thing you remember. It's it's the things that were forced to happen by chance that lodge in your memory. So my whole gig has been based around that and not being afraid to show the process and building the thing with the loopers is that. It's sort of like, well, it's an opportunity for people to get to see essentially how records are made. Mm-hmm. And it also in a way it does sort of keep me in a line of tradition with somebody like Les Paul who used to do a live demonstration of how he overdubbed. Yeah. I mean I've used to go see Les Paul all the time in New York 20 years ago and you know he did every Monday night and there was something really beautiful about that. So all those things sort of coalesced into what Fridays became.
2: And the mastery of all the instruments, too. Uh, you know, a lot of people mastery don't realize... Mastery is a
6: bit of an overstatement. <laughs> well, you know, i got to say, when
2: Macy Gray, you know, how many uh, how many Grammys did she win for that first album? A lot of people don't realize, like, I think he played
6: everything on that record, basically. Oh, no, that's completely untrue. <laughs> no, it is. I, I mean, you know, I'm I'm one of a number of session musicians. I mean, yeah, I played on most of that record and mm-hmm. maybe a number of instruments per song, but not... Well, not all of them. I've by heard the story. Enemies. I've heard
2: the real story, and they say everybody's no, saying Brian that, made that record basically.
6: No, that's complete bullshit. Andy Slater, <laughs> uh, you, you can bleep that. Uh, no, I was just—I uh, was a session musician on it. I didn't produce. Andy Slater did a great job on that mm-hmm. record. I hear that a lot. Like if I'm around on some record, somebody's like, well, you actually produced that and you wrote all those songs <laughs> and uh, you uh, you pressed the record yourself in some strange you know, factory you have that you don't let anybody <laughs> into. Um, but I think there are just assumptions that get made way too quickly. Like, God, you know, it's one that really absolutely blew my mind was when I produced the uh, second Fiona Apple record, a big fan of hers came up and talked to me It was so happy and going oh man this is the record you know we were sort of hoping as fans she would make this is great i'm like oh wow i'm glad to hear that it's beautiful and and he goes so he started bringing up specific things in songs and he goes like oh and fast as you can when it goes to goes to halftime that was that was you right that's your idea (laughs) I'm like um no that's how she wrote it and it was just translating Mm -hmm. and then he brings up a bunch of other stuff and i'm like no, that's what she wrote. I mm. didn't I didn't change a note of what she wrote. And you know, I think finally I got a little bit cranky with somebody in just sort of having to say, you know, it's not like I go in and it's like let me fix this. The people I choose to work with are people I'm interested in learning from and mm. and being around and I mean for me I get this beautiful view of watching my favorite artists work because I'm there. Uh but the assumption I think because of the you know the the classic archetype, the myth of the uh, the mad scientist, which people just sort of stencil on top of me because I play a bunch of instruments. They say, "Well, it's a Prince thing. He does everything." And, <laughs> and he's like Phil Spector and puts the gun at their head and tells them <laughs> how to phrase things, and uh, which really turned out to have some very bad ramifications. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's just not the case. I mean, I feel like I've gotten to be around incredibly talented people and my version of doing my job well the best example i've ever found is there's an old twilight zone episode of an old man walking around with like one of those cigarette trays and he's walking through a diner and he, he's trying to sell knickknacks and people aren't buying and you know he'd walk over to one person and go H- you know here you need this and it was spot remover and the guy was like you know get away from me old man i don't need that and the guy would walk out of the room and the guy would suddenly spill coffee on his tie and mm. you know, look up and the music would go <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, to me that's the essence of what I try to do you try and fill only the spaces which aren't getting taken care of and it's why it's fun to be able to do a lot of things like oh you know today all it needs is like a little bit of crazy piano for eight bars mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, some days maybe you're the person who knows what it should be on all the instruments and it's faster to just play it then try to describe to other people. Sure. Some days you don't play anything and you sit back and you get a free concert. The misunderstanding is because of this, you know, stupid
1: archetype. Who's your hero as producer if you uh
6: hmm, I think Chris Thomas who is not very well known but he was an assistant at Abbey Road and when George Martin would go away on vacation he was actually producing Beatle records, mm. although he didn't get credit for it at the time. Then in the early 70s, when he went independent, he produced, well, let's see, he produced A, a Salty Dog for Proko Harum. Mm-hmm. He produced a number of the early Roxy music records, mm-hmm. the second and the mm-hmm. fifth one, notably, and the early Brian Ferry solo records, uh, 70s Badfinger records, uh, John Kale's Paris 1919. Great record. Uh, beautiful record. Then he goes on to produce... All the early Pretenders records mm-hmm. Produces Nevermind the Bollocks Here's the Sex Pistols In the 80s goes on to produce the couple of the huge Inaccess records In the 90s did Pulp's Different Class mm-hmm. um, Most recently was working with U2 And what I adore about him Is when you look at the trajectory of his career He doesn't have a sound mm-hmm. The only thing is Qualitatively it's always really good there's always a very clear picture of what's going on, and it sounds like that artist at their best. If you put on the second Roxy Music record, it's what you want. That's you as know, good as it gets. Yeah, yeah, you hear additions of you or something like that. You know, or do the strand is just like yes, mm-hmm. I, you're you're getting what you want. Chris Thomas, okay, here mixed. Uh, here come the warm jets mm-hmm. with Eno. Mixed dark side of the moon. Right now, think about this career-wise. He made Never Mind the Bollocks. Yeah. Okay, if if you had only done that, mm-hmm. basically your name should be hallowed. But you think about them and how much they hated Pink Floyd and the Beatles.
1: Mm-hmm. And here's this guy who worked with Pink Floyd. Right, Johnny Rotten oh. wearing an I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt. When hated. He did. Right. <laughs> it's like our
6: music is a reaction against that. We do not want to be that. We do not want to be associated with it. Mm-hmm. And he's like... Right on. Hey, did I mention I made the White Album? (laughs) 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 That's
1: great. I'm Jim DeRogatis from the Sun-Times, and my partner is Greg Cott of the Tribune. We're talking to John Bryan, producer and musician. What do you say you play us some, some music? Hmm... Properly called a uh, a ukulele, John?
6: Uh, it's an eight string ukulele.
1: An eight string ukulele. I uh,
6: recently learned it's also called a, a tarot patch.
1: Hmm. So, maybe so related use... to
6: a nicotine patch. Yeah, know. the
1: usual ukulele has what, four strings? Mm hmm. So, it's like the double neck ukulele. Yeah, I man, this is twice as good. It's like <laughs> you have you twice know. the uke it's like for like your prog, money. Prague jazz, man. <laughs> um, but boy, if it only had a fuzz box.
2: Well, it's a great segue into. Uh, into songs, and uh, one of the things that your residency at Largo and the club itself is sort of noted for is is the art of the song, which a lot of people say is a dying art uh, these days. You have been kind of a champion of that in terms of just the artists you gravitate towards
6: and your own work. Oh, I think songs are astonishing things, and I also don't think most people really even know what they are. Mm-hmm. Why do you say that? I distinguish between... What, For lack of better terms, I call songs and performance pieces. And what most people like are specific performances. We've grown up in an era of recording. And, you know, the very thing, one of the very things I love, recording has killed people's ability to hear songs purely as chord change, melody, and lyric. It's a very strange and beautiful art form because when it's right, boy, do you know it. But what we have sort of lost is, uh, I don't know, the best example I could probably give would be Led Zeppelin. Those things (laughs) are the ultimate performance pieces in that, and the way I can
1: illustrate it is... Cot promised me you were going to bring up Led Zeppelin. Yeah, well, uh,
6: here's the thing. I'm I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I think they're just absolutely astonishing, and the sort of dynamics they had are sorely lacking in music today. Uh, record making is great um, a true band in the sense that you really could tell who the individuals were a mm-hmm. uh, remarkable thing and i don't consider most of those things songs and the way i can sort of prove my point is have you ever listened to anybody else play a Led Zeppelin song and gone, oh, that was a great, satisfying experience? Except for Dred Zeppelin, who I loved. (laughs) Mm. Um, What people like is that specific guitar sound, that specific performance Mm -hmm. in concert with that specific drum sound, with that specific drummer playing that specific part. Um, And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. they are all different types of art and creative expression. However, if I were to sit and go, here over on the piano, go, this is the melody to a Led Zeppelin song. <laughs> you know, and I could play, you know, 30 yeah. others. That that's the thing. Yeah. Um you know, I know it could sound like a snobbishness. It's not. I'm telling you, I love these records. Sure. They're great. Uh however, it is there's a difference between that and a song, say a Gershwin song. You could actually play in the style of Led Zeppelin and have a completely satisfying experience. I do it mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to hear that. But when you start playing Zeppelin songs, say in the style of like 1920s music, suddenly it's laid bare that it's like, yeah. oh no, it was about those people and those people were in a room and it was mm-hmm. and it was great and I, I love it, but I consider it a performance piece and I consider a lot of rock that people listen to be performance pieces they're not necessarily songs so you know i heard you had tom york here recently and there's a guy who's a songwriter comes into the band and goes here's the thing i've got and then they you know rock with holy hardness and and all the greatness they've got with Mm -hmm. them getting in a room i mean you know that's part of what makes a band like radiohead stand out you know when that second record came out we all collectively went oh my god somebody who actually has songs, and this guy's an amazing singer.
1: It isn't extinct yet. Yeah. And or Cobain, right? Right,
6: exactly. And I mean, okay, here, let's do uh, a little musicology course. Okay, if you just go, yeah, it was cool, it was, you know, punk rock, it was popular, he had it factor for days, but uh, if you take the average punk rock song, it <laughs> is that same Led Zeppelin melody, even though they hated Zeppelin so much. It's <laughs> you know, but if it's like it'd be you know one of a thousand punk songs sure uh there's a big difference between that and <laughs> i mean i can sit here on grand piano play an unaffected version and we can all go oh my god yeah that's the best thing ever yeah and again my my spine tingles anytime i Play that melody over those chord changes, mm-hmm. that to me lithium is no different it's in the same realm as being able to go you know uh mm-hmm. you know, where you know, probably like most people, I remember exactly where I was first time I heard lithium. I mm-hmm. remember back of the friend's car and it came on, and I just freaked out, I mean, I was nearly in tears, I'm like. Oh my god, that guy's better than everybody's life. <laughs> <last>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Yeah. But, you know, it was so palpable, like that's one of the best chord changes I've ever heard. It's absolutely as good as, you know, Gershwin or Thelonious Monk or any great thing that's existed.
1: Well, I think this is a point where we absolutely have to insert this eight hundred pound gorilla, two top Chicago rock critics. Uh we were we, when do we bring up Kanye West? But I think now's yeah. the time because you know, we still have I mean it's amazing to me, even people who love music mm-hmm. will still make this argument to Greg and myself. Well, he's rap, you know, he's okay for <laughs> rap. He's not a musician. Yeah. So so <laughs> put put for me put for me put put Kanye in that lineage of it's Gershwin funny. to Cobain to yeah. Well,
6: you know, the thing is what Kanye is doing is remarkable he has pure musical instincts and i remember i was playing bass on something one day he was like stop stop i'm like what he's like you're playing funky i hate when people play funky <laughs> <laughs> and i was i was sort of taking him back and he was really just like so sick of working with musicians trying wearing rap stuff okay i'm gonna do the really fine things like why won't people just play melody <laughs> mm-hmm. and i was like i love playing melody especially on bass i said you like that he's like I love that. Mm. you know. And this was in the first few days we were working together. I'm like, we're going to get along fine. We yeah. Right? Yeah. have no problem. I've watched him walk into a control room where I've had something up. I've made a rough mix. think it sounds decent, and you know it's in a good place for us to start work when he comes in. He'll come in and go, no, no, no. It's all wrong. Throws all the faders down, puts them up, and in five or six minutes makes these really extreme relationships between things, and suddenly it has life force. Hmm. The guy has pure instincts. He knows it when he hears it. He has the commitment to his ideas. And, you know, some musicians will think this is bull, but, you know, the records he gravitates to and what sections he grabs, they're melodic sections. He absolutely gets it, he understands it, and then when you hear how he pits other things against it, you can see that he understands juxtaposition. The guy is an artist.
1: There's some Kanye West, the song, Gone, from his late registration album, with that incredible string part that was uh, composed, arranged, and orchestrated by our guest, John Bryan. This is Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to be back in a minute with more of our discussion with John Bryan and a Desert Island jukebox pick from Greg Cott.
0: I'm ahead of my time, sometimes years out So the powers that be won't let me get my ideas out And that make me want to get my advance out And move to Oklahoma and just live in my aunt's house Yeah, I romance the thought of leaving it all behind Kanye, step away from the lime Light, like when I was on the grind in the one Nah Model chicks was bending over. Or, dealerships ask me, Vins a rover Man, if I could just get one beat on Hover, we could get up off the sheep ass sofa. What the summer of the shy got to offer? A 18-year-old. Sell drugs to get a job, you gotta play Euro. My dog worked at Taco Bell, hooked us up roll. Fired a week later, the manager kept the churro. Sometimes I can't believe it when I look up in the mirror. How we out in Europe, spinning Euros. They claim you never know what you got till it's gone. I know I got it. I'm I don't know which I long. I'm going to open up a store for aspiring MCs. Won't sell them no dream, but the inspiration is free. But if they ever flip sides like Anakin, you will sell everything, including the mannequin. They got a new bitch, now you Jennifer Aniston. Hold on, i handle it. Don't start panicking, stay calm. Shorty's at the door because they need
2: more. You're listening to Sound Opinions. We are listening to John Bryan. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. Jim De DeRogatis is my partner from the Chicago Sun-Times. Man, not only are you this uh, Hollywood uh, movie composer, soundtrack maven, uh, you've you've done some great production wow, work. Oh, maven! Yes, you are. You have your own cottage. I industry. feel like Citizen Kane. And actually, I I have to say, you know, just a quick side note. I, I listened to the Drunk Love uh, soundtrack just for fun, independently of the movie, because I think the compositions themselves actually stand on their own incredibly well. And then when you see what the movie, you, you kind of get what you're going at. You talk about a lost art, songwriting. The the whole Hollywood or just a movie soundtrack in itself has become sort of a a, a lost art. How do you do that? How do you do that well? As opposed to like, okay, let's call up uh, the latest hot band to write a, a, a kickoff song for the new Godzilla blockbuster, you know? Yeah,
6: well, I mean, it's more the fault of the filmmakers and the movie companies than the film composers. There are a ton of talented people on the West Coast who can do anything that's asked of them. And for the most part, what's being asked of them is to be typical. And most of their paychecks depend on homogeny. And, you know, that's not their fault specifically. I've just been lucky in that I've worked with people who are mavericks and mavens and stand up for themselves. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is a guy who basically won't allow any movie people onto the set or any recording session and I didn't even realize this was special because I started with Paul, and it's only in the intervening years where I realized there are always producers around. There's always somebody visiting from the movie company. They always have to have an opinion. (laughs) The film guys have it tough. It's a very, very thankless job, and I think the only reason I've gotten to do some things that have maybe stood out a little bit is because I've aligned myself with people who are trying to do that in every choice they make. Mm -hmm. You know, Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry and Paul Thomas Anderson and David Russell. I mean, these are not people who are going around trying to make movies like everybody else. It's, yeah. in fact, they wake up in the morning going, how am I going to do something different? I've been lucky. All I've generally heard in my career is somebody doesn't go, hey, how can you make that sound more like our things? If anything, they're going to be as quick as me to point out, like, yeah, that just sounds like other movies. <laughs> Which is beautiful, that's the kind of comment I want. I want somebody to call me if I'm you know being lazy. I want to get mm. called on it, yeah, like yeah, that's the obvious thing to do for the scene, and it's great, and you did it right, you know in quotation marks, mm-hmm. um but come on, I mean, we've got the opportunity to do something here that's and cool. when somebody says that to you, it's like. You're you're an idiot not to rise to the occasion. You've
2: got uh, many avenues of expression, John, and uh, the question is: You've written a number of songs since the last record came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen you perform a number of them over the years. Great, great stuff. And I guess oh, the question to you. me is: Is, it, is there a part of you that needs to get that stuff out, or are you satisfied with the other stuff that you're doing? Artistically? See, I don't,
6: I don't feel okay because I've never felt part of. Th- uh, what i call the there's like the rock myth and the sort of punk myth stuff i'm i'm not interested in it if i didn't have everything else i would probably have a little more burning drive but i don't i don't have personal ambition in that way of i must get my records out people must pay attention to them people must say they're good i must be doing that and i better do it soon cuz you know whatever well i'm i'm 42 it's too late already isn't it By the standard clock, I've already completely done it. I've done a very poor job with my (laughs) career. Um, And it's confusing for some people to understand. But, uh, you know, there's a problem I've run into. People who know me as a producer first will actually sit down, like very kindly trying to talk to me so i can stop being so self-destructive like you've got to you know why don't you just concentrate on that i mean the movie stuff and it's cute you want to be a songwriter but just do that like, you know you yeah. could be you know you could really make something of yourself <laughs> honestly and i'm talking people i really respect yeah if people knew me as a songwriter first okay why are you so psychologically willfully self-destructive as to not put out records all the time you're one of my favorite songwriters why don't you do that Hmm. More, why are you wasting your time working for other people? That's, it's really worrisome, and I think you really need to look into it, and you should stop doing these other things. <laughs> the people who do movies don't even notice that, that I'm a song. Like, not yeah. even, it's not on their radar. <laughs> the fact that I produce records doesn't matter. People who are doing movies are completely tunnel vision, not only about movies in general, but only their movie. Right, Nothing right, right. else exists. So I'm sure my... Film agent would be happy if I didn't produce records and didn't constantly say no when mm. things came in. I'm sure a lot of the artists I produce could care less whether I get anything of my own done. Yeah. And for me, it's all fun and it's all wonderful. And if I'm lucky enough to not be hit by a bus, by the time my life's done, I'll probably have made as many records as a solo artist as most people make in their career because other people only make them as long as record companies are paying for them, promoting them, as long as audiences are showing up. Right. Only during the period for some people uh, where there's a certain sort of vanity mm-hmm. in it like, well, you know, I look too old to be in a rock band now, so I can't really do that as much now. You know, the rock fans I like, that doesn't matter, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. If I'm, you know, if I look like Benjamin Franklin it's not really going to be an issue for <laughs> yeah. me in a week I can work on a movie yeah play on somebody else's record write a song with somebody play a gig of my own spend a day putzing around in a studio maybe recording some of my own songs maybe just making sound and take two days off and see friends but the fact is, I intend to do stuff until they put me in the ground.
1: Some of the, uh, the, the uh, machinations that David Singer went through to get you to come to Chicago to perform at the Intonation Music Fest, and I was saying to myself the whole time, I was like, hey, what's, you know, you call a guy up, he wants to play or he doesn't. Suddenly it all makes sense. I'm <laughs> amazed you're here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really, we're amazed and we're happy, man. Yeah, absolutely. <Awesome>. All right, why don't we uh, why don't we wrap it up and maybe you know give us another song or two and then I think you're you're flying back home.
6: Okay, what might be? Okay, here I'll just play one instrumental thing. See if I can get through.
1: the soundtrack pieces, John? Mm-hmm. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind? Exactly. All right. <laughs> John Bryan on Sound Opinion. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thanks, John. Cool to be here.
6: Cool. See you guys soon. I tell
4: you, little buddy, this whole island is
6: bewitched.
7: Remember, we were
1: shipwrecked together. Each week on Sound Opinions, either Greg or I take a turn in popping a quarter into the Desert Island jukebox. Greg, it's your week. What do you got? Well, Jim, I know that you shed no
2: tears when this news was announced about ten days ago, but I cried for the both of us (laughs) because I love this band. I'll let you have that one. Sleater Kinney, I think one of the best bands in rock and roll for the last decade, basically announced that they're breaking up at the end of their summer tour, which ends in Chicago, in Grant Park, on August 4th at Lollapalooza. A band's website said after 11 years as a band, Sleater-Kinney have decided to go on indefinite hiatus. Uh, indefinite hiatus sounds an awful lot like we're quitting, <laughs> never to be seen again.
1: Nobody quits anymore, though. You well, know, the Pixies said that, and well, Mr. I, Burma I, said that. I mean, nobody quits. They'll, I, I, they'll be back for I, the so, cash-in tour 10 years from now. You
2: know, they can cash in all they want. They left behind seven extraordinary albums, each one. I think, a gem. Uh, But I really think they found their stride with their third record, 1997, Dig Me Out. And the reason they did was the addition of drummer Janet Weiss, who I think really made a difference in the way the band sounded. Corin Tucker and Kerry Brownstein were there from the beginning, trading vocals, trading guitar parts. Lovers at one time. Broke up and maintain the band in spite of the tensions that would be inherent in such a situation. And I think that that gave a lot of punch and oomph to the Dig Me Out record. Recorded during a blizzard in Seattle in the winter of uh, 97, you can hear these three gals in the studio punching their way out of this cabin fever situation with some of the best rock and roll of that decade, I think. The very first song on the record, I think, kind of indicates the shift that the band took. And you can hear it when Janet Weiss hits that snare drum for the first time in this song. It's like firing off a starting pistol. You know, all three members racing the guitar, playing counterpoint to the vocals as Corin uh, Tucker and Carrie Brownstein swap lines throughout the song. And Weiss's drumming is just maniacal. Less than two and a half minutes, the song is over, but it really set the tempo and the energy for the remainder of Sleater Kinney's career, where I think the band just kept making great records thereafter. And this is the very first track on that third album, and the title song, Dig Me Out, on Sound Opinions. That's Dig Me Out from Sleater Kinney. That's my Desert Island jukebox for this week. Uh, Sleater Kinney, longtime Portland
1: trio with its swan song at Grand Park August 4th. Do not, oh, not right. miss that show, Jim. <laughs> I, well, I'll be there at Lollapalooza <laughs> at Chicago's Grand Park. I don't know if I was in a band. Uh, well, I am in a band, but we are not playing Chicago's Grand Park, and, and I wouldn't because bands. Lay there and they break up. The replacements famously broke up on stage at a July 4th concert in Grand Park. And now Sleater Kinney is choosing to bow out there. Yeah, well, who knows? Widespread Panic played last year in Grand Park. We we couldn't have been so lucky. They're still together. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, What do we have for next week? Next week we have Rhymefest, who I think has made one of the best
2: records of the year already. In the middle of summer, we've got a (laughs) classic hip-hop album
1: we're already the working best. towards the ten, the, the year-end best-of right? list you just finished the mid-year you, it's all about lists why should people care this guy co-wrote Jesus Walks with Kanye West people have been waiting for his proper debut album ever since he's finally dropping it next week and he's here in the studio live with us plus we're gonna talk about the new Tom York don't call it a solo album right. uh, but the album credited to Tom got some thank yous to say on the way out we want to thank David Singer of the Intonation Festival who helped uh, bring John Bryan by As always, our executive producer is Tori Malatia. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingerspiegel is our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. Dino Armiros gives us legal assistance. Joe Dessau gives us technical assistance. And Mary Gaffney gives us recording assistance. Thanks for listening.